Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. I'm Kim Simone. I'm here with my partner in wine crime, Mark Lenzi. How are you today, Mark? Hi, Kim. Excited again to talk wine. Oh, yeah. We found a bunch of good stories, I think. I hope the listeners like them. Yeah, I love this first one because it's something near and dear to me, which is cooking with wine. And a question that I often get from people about what wine should you cook with? Can you use an old bottle of wine for cooking? Can you use a bottle that's been open on your counter for a long time for cooking? And then the question that this article from Vine Pair posed, which was can you use a corked wine for cooking? So a lot of different questions there to to talk about today. Yeah, so Kim, first I want to ask you a question, then I want to end the article with the question. is: it, okay. They always say, don't cook with the wine if you wouldn't drink it. Do you agree with that? Without getting into any detail, just a brief statement of, I wouldn't cook with it because I don't drink. Because then I want to follow up. My answer end, is always, it depends. See, you can, well, just, okay. do you agree with the overall statement? So no, you want to say no. More than yet. That's the question again? If with- the, you, you heard the <laughs> traditional thing is you don't cook with it if you wouldn't drink it yourself, right? Right. You hear that a lot. We do. So would you say you agree with it or don't agree? Without going into your maybe... I don't agree. I okay. would cook right. with a wine so now, that I wouldn't necessarily drink. Now we'll discuss the article. Then at the end, I want to follow it up. Okay. All right. So my hesitation there is more based on at what point in its life is this wine. So I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with cooking with wine that had been open on my counter for a little while that might not taste so good in the glass, but it's going to be perfectly fine for cooking. And I do get the question often like, okay, what am I going to do with a leftover bottle of wine? And I always say, just just cook with it. You know, leave it on your counter. Even if it starts to kind of turn to vinegar or gets oxidized a little bit, it's still going to be fine for cooking. So you're saying it sits for a week or two weeks. You can still cook. My understanding is when you cook with it, most of whatever that old wine taste probably burns off. But there so are... So it's not detectable, right. correct? You know, when you're cooking with wine, what you're looking for in the wine is not necessarily its flavors, its fruity flavors, because those are kind of going to cook off when you cook it anyway. But you're looking for acid. You're looking for the alcohol is going to burn off, but sort of that whiny flavor. So the things that are going to stick around are the acids, the sugars, and the tannins if you're cooking with a red wine. And often with beverages that we're being asked to cook with anyway, like maybe you want to put a little splash of vinegar or something, or it'll, it'll call for a little bit of lemon juice at the end, you're just looking for that acidic hit. And a lot of wines that are considered to be great for cooking with, like Madeiras and Marsalas and things that are very in, in very traditional dishes, are wines that have undergone a lot of oxidation, meaning they've been exposed to a lot of oxygen and have started to take on sort of secondary and tertiary flavors and aromas like nuttiness and like dried fruits and things like that. And the dishes that are calling for those things, they're looking for those flavors from the wine. And that's what happens when you leave a bottle of wine open on your counter for a while. It gets oxidized. It loses a lot of its fruit, but then it gets kind of these other flavors. So that's why I don't have a problem cooking with wines that have been open for a while, because I kind of like those flavors in the finished dish, and I feel like it works pretty well. You're the foodie. I eat food. We you both eat food. Like I wine. cook food. <laughs> so you're cooking. It loses the alcohol. It loses fruit, correct? Yeah. So how do we still get the wine flavor? It still just has that like 
it just tastes like wine. You yeah, know, it tastes whiny, like wine, but it's whininess. Said, it, everything supposedly cooks off, but you're still getting flavor. So right. if the wine is old, say a week or two old, it obviously will lose the fruit sitting on the counter. So when you taste it, you really don't taste the flavor. So why, when we cook with it, does it seem to come back somehow? It just still tastes like wine. Like you can taste it's just it. It's interesting and you, that it comes, you still get the flavor, but if you drink it straight, you're like, it's off. But right? it still tastes like wine. Yeah, bad wine, right? But off still wine. wine. You yeah. still know that that's <laughs> wine right. and not beer and not vodka yeah. and not gin. I see, okay. Like you still know that, that that's wine. And I think it does the same thing when you cook with it. But then there are certain things in the wine that are going to be highlighted as you cook with it. So yes, the alcohol will burn off, but if you have a sweet wine that you're cooking with, that sugar isn't going anywhere. That sugar is staying there. So that's why that's I, I recommend- too. I never thought about yeah, the sugar pot. I always think about the sugar. So whenever people ask me, you know, what kind of wine should I cook with? My go-to answer is nothing with a lot of oak and nothing that's really sweet because those things will be concentrated once you cook with them. Yeah, I think we discussed this before because we both, I, I always say go with something with some acidity to it. Exactly, yeah, because so you want that acid. This. Yeah, so Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blancs, unoaked Chardonnays are great for cooking with. The other thing to not cook with, and this is really the at the heart of this article, is if you have a corked bottle, don't use it because, again, those flavors are going to get concentrated. I know we've talked about cork bottles a lot on the show. You want to just remind our listeners? The cork wine is actually, it smells like a wet cardboard or a wet dog hair, I like to say. Or your basement. And you taste that musty, moldy flavor. So it loses all its fruit. So, I mean, I would assume if you cooked with this, it's going to to enhance that horrible mustiness. That musty, moldy, wet cardboard, basement-y smell will get into your dish and you don't want your food to smell like moldy wet cardboard. So if you do have a corked bottle of wine, you actually can usually bring it back to wherever you purchased it and they will let you trade it in. But by no means, don't cook with it. So let's talk about, Kim, they said most professional kitchens, and I've seen this numerous times, I've seen it in cooking schools, Mm -hmm. the wine that they are stocking in the kitchen is usually the most inexpensive wine you can get. And in pretty large format too. Right, and it's it's open for a long Or a bottle, big jug of wine. And yeah, those wines, they'll stay open or maybe they're using leftover wine that isn't going to be used for anything else and you don't really want to dump your profits down the sink so you do find uses for open bottles Um, and i sometimes suggest to people that if you know the wine's only been open for a day or two and it still has some fruit to it use it for cocktails use it for sangria use it for mulled wine or use it for cooking yes so proves the whole point that it doesn't matter the grade of the wine you just want to get that flavor of the wine so you can use inexpensive mm-hmm. stuff and i know for instance one of the most popular thing people look for with me is chicken masala they're looking mm-hmm. for masala so there's the regular pastine masala which is like five bucks a bottle and then you go up into your next grade and you jump to like say 12 15 99 of the time people buy that five dollar do they 99 <laughs> of the time and it's kind of weird because I, I always catch myself because I say, are you you're drinking it or are you cooking with it? And I mean, obviously both, right? I mean, but they always just want, just give me the basic because I feel like they feel they can leave that open longer maybe. Yeah, I, I can imagine that probably the most people who people who are out there buying Marsala usually are buying it to make chicken Marsala and not necessarily to yeah, drink it. It's probably the most popular thing. All people come in looking for burgundy. Quote unquote. Giving, yeah, and I was giving people a while. So let's get back. I started, if you won't drink it, don't cook with it. And I think you first said no, right? You wouldn't, right? right? But yeah, so obviously your bottle's on your counter. You're obviously not drinking it, so you're keeping it to cook with. So 
But but that means that that bottle, when it was freshly opened, I was drinking it. Yeah. I didn't have that in my house th- with the sole intention of I'm using this as cooking wine. That started its life as what I was drinking with my dinner. And then for whatever reason, we didn't finish the wine. Now, that's interesting because that's a very good thing now because you did drink it. I did drink it. So you would drink it or and I you would it, cook it with or it. Or right? I used it for a tasting or I had leftovers or, you know, maybe maybe I was doing a wine class and I had six open bottles of wine and we didn't finish some of the bottles. And so I had them on hand and we didn't get around to finishing them within the first couple of days. And so they started to go downhill and I wasn't going to be drinking them any longer but originally, when they were freshly opened, I did drink them. So I guess what I was kind of going with is, who would have said this? They made it such a popular thing because chefs don't agree with it, right? I mean, you don't agree yeah. with it. You're a foodie. So who would say that I think and go it's by more it, the you know? idea of if the bottle, if the wine in the bottle, when, it's, when you pop the cork or twist off the corkscrew, is of such low quality that you wouldn't want to drink it right off the bat, then you shouldn't be cooking with it. And I think that's what they mean and not necessarily what is the state of the wine right now. So like everything we seem to answer here, there's always sort of a nuanced yeah, <laughs> perspective on, on it. Because I yeah. still I had more questions like if you buy an inexpensive wine, you just want the wine flavor, you'll still get the flavor, but it's not maybe as a concentrated flavor or something like that? Was mm-hmm. that would that be how you explain it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, always so many more questions. <laughs> That's right. We, we bring up more questions than we answer. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and we're exploring all things wine with you today. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, and you can find our past episodes on iTunes. Next, we want to talk about an article that was in Wine Enthusiast magazine, bringing the attention to Virginia winemaking, Kim. And in in the past, I always think of Virginia as a historic wine region. And I've also had people from other countries, a gentleman from Italy came to me and said he thought that Nebbiolo being grown in Virginia was just as good as stuff he's had in Piemonte. Oh, maybe Nebbiolo has finally found its, uh, its spot in America. Yeah, I thought that was like a huge thing for an Italian to say, this grape being grown here is good quality. So what are your impressions, Virginia and and the two grapes that they highlighted in this article? So Virginia, since the time of early English colonization of the U.S., has sort of been this area where the most people have really wanted to get wine growing and and winemaking going in the U.S. It's perfectly situated. It's by the Atlantic Ocean. It's relatively temperate, but still has cold enough winters that the, the grapevine can kind of do their little hibernation thing in the wintertime that they do. But for so long, there was so much trying to grow grapes and make wine out of European grape varieties that just it just didn't happen. Thomas Jefferson and his ilk tried so many times and it never it worked. And now um, with modern winemaking techniques and a more of an understanding of the pests that we have on this side of the US and sort of the idea that we can grow European style grapes and make wines over here on the East Coast. It sounds like Virginia is finally starting to do what many people always hoped that it would do. 
Yeah, I know you're big on the, the history. I love the history stuff. And I do recall reading a lot about how the first settlers, they struggled, like you said, yeah. so hard. They to tried get so it. hard. They brought people in from, from the old world to say, you know, what's going on here? Yep, um, and it never worked. And now we're finally starting to see that there are some nice grapes and, you know, good wine being made in Virginia. The interesting thing is that it seems like a lot of the grape varieties that do so well in California aren't suitable for being grown in Virginia. You know, the climate is really good, but it's a whole lot damper. And so there are grape varieties that are working pretty well with the climate of Virginia. And this article highlighted the two most promising. One's a, one is a white and one is a red. The white is called Petite Monsang, and this is native to France. And it has a thick skin, and it gives really rich floral, really powerful style of white wine. Have you ever had this varietal came in 100% form? I have, but in a French in a French, French one. French version, yeah. yeah. I was not say, in a, not never, an American I've version. I've never even seen, I mean, I've seen a lot of Virginia wines, but I've never seen this in the blend or as a single varietal. Yeah. But it did say it's not, their most popular or most planted grapes are still Chardonnay and Viognier. So. Right. And I can see this sort of has a similarity to Viognier. So I could see that if Viognier works well here, that Petit uh, Mansang would work well here too. That because Virginia has a lot of more humidity than California does, they really have to deal with grapes that are going to resist sort of the mold and the rot and all of the those kind of microbial problems that you do get with human environments. To me, this grape reminds me a lot of Viognier because of that floral Yeah, notes. the floral and then the sugar and the acid and the, both of those levels in this grape seem to be particularly high. But this probably has kind of a unique, what type of spice would you say? More mm. than Viognier, I don't think it has a, this has a little spice note yeah, to it. Yeah, like then. less than Gewurztraminer, but yeah. more than Viognier. Yeah, good yeah. description there. Yeah. And then the second grape variety is a red that is native to Bordeaux. It's Petit Verdot, which you see little, little, little quantities of in Bordeaux nowadays used to be a little bit more popular, but this seems to be a grape variety that is kind of going to fill the Cabernet Sauvignon style spot because it is distantly related to Cabernet and can make nice, big, full-bodied red wines. Yeah, full-bodied. And they were saying in Virginia, they, they have like 200 acres planted to this. And just quickly, Kim, I just want to tell our listeners, they gave some stats on Virginia wine in general. And they were saying now it's number six in the United States as mm -hmm. far as production. So it's it's up there for production. It has uh, 280 wineries, which I think I only know of two that are in Massachusetts. Do you, do you know any, Kim? Um, just the ones that I've tasted from your store. And there was a, a lovely, lovely rosé a couple of summers ago, and then a couple of whites, which I thought were quite nice. Well, I was, I was shocked because I thought you being the political person, the Trump <laughs> winery is in Virginia, right? So two you can usually find in Mass, a Trump and Barbersville. And Barbersville, Barbersville is, the, is the, the winery one. we hosted one time that made excellent whites and, and red blends. And they're not inexpensive. They have Pinot Grigio as well, but those are the two you'll find in Mass. And they're saying of the 280 wineries, there are seven protected agricultural areas. And there is some high altitude, which I was surprised of, up to like 6,000 feet of, of altitude. Which is so. usually great for grape growing. So, yeah. so I that think was this is an area to watch, just like we're watching some other states that are building up their wine industry. And we're starting to see some really good quality wines from a whole bunch of different places. So this is something to watch.
listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find me online at vinitaswineworks.com and find out all about Mark and his store at franklinliquors.com. All right, we've got some trending wine news that I know would be near and dear to you, Mark, because it talks about labeling and how customers are kind of maybe getting a little bit duped by a, a certain brand of wine that is out there. Yeah, this was a story. Many articles have been trending about this because it's following the start to all the legal ramifications of it. But it was all based upon a winemaker whose name is Joe Wagner. And he is very famous for creating the wine brand Miomi. Miomi Pinot Noir was mm-hmm. created by this gentleman. He then sold it to Constellation. He's the son of the Camus Winery father. So very famous. I know you know of him. So Kim, why don't you tell our listeners what he did? So he is putting sort of fanciful names on his wine labels that are sort of implying that they come from better regions than they actually come from. So he has one wine that is called the Willameter Journal. And Willamette is probably the most highly regarded AVA area in the state of Oregon for producing high quality Pinot Noirs. Much more stringent rules go into Oregon winemaking than in other places in the country. So a lot more attention to making sure that higher percentages of the grape that's on the label are actually in the bottle and they really making an an effort to make sure that the grapes are from where the label says the grapes are from. So by putting this name Willameter, quote unquote, on the front of his label and in the name of the wine, he's sort of implying that these grapes have an association with the Willamette Valley. And in fact, they do not. So that is the one of the issues that people have with uh, with some of his labeling. And he also implies in other places that there are other ties to certain EVAs that the grapes, they're really not from those places. But by using certain words on the labels, he's implying that they have a relationship to those places. I love the geeky wine label articles because it falls into to place of what we tell people when we educate them. And, and the first thing on this was saying Willamette Journal as the brand name and associating a region with the brand is a trick. Right. You're misrepresenting the origin of where these grapes are from. Well, I won't touch this subject until we to all the thing he says. Okay. But he also said on the label that it's the Willamette region of Oregon's coastal range. Now, there is no such... It's all gobbledygook. Yeah, yeah it's like word salad that there. That grows Pinot Noir in the coastal region of Oregon. So what happens? He buys grapes in Oregon, ships them to California to make it, bottle it, and then he brings it back to Oregon to sell it. Now some Oregon either winemaker or regulator of the wine industry sees it on the shelves and is like, what the heck is this? What, what is this? He's reading the label, which we love when people kind of detail and say, this can't be true. Well, how is this being sold? Right. So now it's interesting because every label that is put on a wine or a brand that started has to be approved by the TTB. The government has to look at that, make sure it's not misrepresenting and is following all the rules. He gets it approved. I don't know how he got this one approved. There's so much on this label that is going against what the, what the rules say you're supposed to do. Yeah, and it not it funny, Kim, that the government says it's okay, and then these people, the growers and everything else, get mad at the wine guy who did what he was supposed to do. In a way, I look at it, he did what he was supposed to do. He submitted it. He knew he was he playing a game. He knew he was playing which, games. Which many wineries do. They, they play little tricks, which we tell people, this is what you have to look for. He got away with it. So now they're saying, okay, you have to now correct that label. And they got to the point where they kind of said, remove it. They're thinking of banning him from mm-hmm. selling in the state. And one of the things they mentioned 
is the one of the labels he created was for wasn't Trader Joe's. It was for like Total Wine. It was a second label for someone okay. to sell. So this was another big company that he made this for to push it. It probably sold a ton before it got to the point where he had to correct it. Right. And this touches on a couple of other things that we have explored over the years on this show. And one of them is origin and the importance of origin. And there was a case about a year ago that we talked about where folks were growing grapes in California, but then shipping them to Texas to be made. And the question was, well, what do you put on the label? Is it that the grapes were grown in Napa, but that they're made in Texas? Like, what's the most important? And kind of come back to this idea of terroir, you know, the importance of place and the flavor of place. It's like, oh, okay, you know, we, we talk about soil and we talk about the grapes ripening and climate and all that stuff. But then people want to take into consideration, well, where is the wine made? So what is it about terroir? Is it just where the grapes are grown? Or is there some impact on where the wine is made as well? So that is, I think, a, p- a part of this issue too, where he's growing grapes or buying grapes that are grown in Oregon and then shipping them to California to be made. And I think that there are certain winemakers that have a definite issue with that. And I look at it as far as being the label geek. If I saw this on the shelf, what would I would stick out to me? And the, and the first thing was using the Willamette in the brand name. I, right away, I know something's going on. But, but you know that. Yeah. Well, being but what geek, about a layperson? They who... would they would associate the to the actual region. Yeah, they would. Which is very And very that's common. the issue here. Right. And what he come back and said, like we said earlier, Kim, he says, I followed all the rules of the government and the TTB. You approved it. And then the other thing he did on the back label, which we say, and the government says the back label must be truthful, but there's cases where people put things back there. You know, you can't say this is great wine. You can't misrepresent. And he put on that it's sourced from the territory of Oregon. and But there's no territory of Oregon yeah. is the issue. So that was an issue on the back label. Mm-hmm. Then if you looked at one of the laws we talk about all the time as well, Kim, is he has to say where it is bottled. So his bottling statement is vented and bottled by the Willamette, which is the brand, in Rutherford, California. So he does put the California on there. Yes, because that's where he's he physically yeah. making it and bottling it. So me, again, as a consumer, the first thing I would look, I say something's going on with this. It's He's saying Willamette here, but he's saying California here. Ideally... If you fall, he followed the laws. If you understood the laws, you know something's not right mm-hmm. with this. But these people have so much pride, like you said, Kim, in their terroir, promoting the region. They just went crazy. Yeah. Well, and I think that Oregon winemakers have really bought into this idea of the origin is is really like a brand. You know, this is a very European mentality when it comes to winemaking, where the, the French are, are big on, okay, the place is what matters. And so the place is really kind of the brand, like Champagne or Bordeaux or whatnot. And the winemakers of Oregon are, are kind of thinking along similar lines. They have worked for many, many years to build up the quality and the reputation of Willamette and other places in in Oregon, and they don't want that abused. And I understand that. Yeah. Let's just talk about this. Well, I'll give my opinion on this gentleman in general. He started Miomi. His big thing with Miomi was a Pinot Noir that was dark, heavy. It was only 75% Pinot Noir. And he changed he basically changed the trend of what people think Pinot Noir is. Mm-hmm. So looking back at that, I was thinking, even at that point, I think he was trying to mislead a consumer by creating what he thought Pinot Noir, but he was within the law. He was within the law. So he, to me, 
it sticks out as this is the way the guy works, mm-hmm. which I'm wondering now, I don't know if he's close to his father from Camus or not, but he's obviously broken away. But I wonder if he learned that from Camus winemaking. Mm. Or this is just how he felt. Or maybe he's just an envelope pusher. Yeah. It yeah maybe that's why he left the, the Camus to do this because maybe. he figured this is a way I can... And Camus has always been pretty traditional. So he's doing some very untraditional things with winemaking here. So yeah, maybe it was a, a matter of wanting to do something different than what the family had always done. Yeah, and he didn't, but he didn't break the rules. And I'm surprised now they're saying you have to pull it or you have to change the label. They already approved the label. Well, maybe so they realized they made a, that they made a mistake. Now I think all the label submissions are just electronic. So I wonder if it just like scans, look for certain things, but... How could this not stick out as Yeah, I would deceptive? think so, because it's not like there's just one thing on this label. There's a lot of little things going on on this. Yeah, I could see brands that in the past have done it and got away with it, and then they say, okay, we got to flag this. But I was trying to find the most recent update to the story. I think they made him pull it. Did you see the final result? I think they no, had I didn't. A, he had a pull it, and they're talking about banning them altogether from sales in the state. Wow. So, I mean, that's their own regulated body in Oregon, so... And nobody is going to invite him to anything in Oregon anymore. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and we'd have enjoyed exploring all things wine with you today. If you'd like to get more information on our show, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, or you can find our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Cheers! Bye.